0: Welcome to Out of Our Minds. This is a discussion between Pastor Tim Bailey, Pastor Jake Menzel, and myself, Nathan Alberson, on the subject of preaching. You are listening to part one. Now, if you really want to understand preaching, then what you need to do is go to newgenevaacademy.com and learn about New Geneva Academy. We partner with the local church to equip men called the pastorate and eldership and to help local church leadership implement a faithful vision for church growth. NGA is training the next generation of pastors for historically Reformed churches. So if you are interested or you know a man who's interested in becoming a pastor for a godly, biblical, Reformed church, you really needs to check out nga that's newgenevaacademy.com. Tim, how many years were you a full-time preacher? From 83 through 22. So longer than I almost I've 40 years. Been alive, longer than Jake's been alive. That's mm-hmm. right. Almost 39. 40 years. So, I want to pick your brain about preaching and I want to ask you about The art of homiletics. And you've already got a little smile on your face. So I want to ask you what the the little smile on the face.
1: I'm smiling because I was asked by the rector of Bibel Seminar Bonn, BSB, the Bible School and Seminary in Bonn, Germany, that we've been at the last few months. The rector, Heinrich Dirksen, it's a Russian Baptist group that moved back to Germany mostly in the 80s about three million strong. It may be one of the most, if not the most vital evangelical group in all of Europe. Anyhow, he asked me to give a lecture to his, I'm going to say second-year students in a class that he taught on homiletics. And he assigned me the job of creative homiletics. And he explained that an awful lot of the churches in the Russian-German movement preach expositionally. And he wanted me to help open up people's minds to the fact that there are other ways to preach mm-hmm. <laughs> it is not necessary that every sermon be a verse by verse exposition of a specific text and so this is something to be speaking to students to be speaking on homiletics caused me to think about preaching in a way that i, I suppose in seminary i had some thoughts about it mm-hmm. And very quickly, I realized that there are extremely rigid commitments with regard to preaching and that this is one of the ways that pastors divide themselves. Mm -hmm. And I learned again, my father was very bright and very well-read and very urbane, cosmopolitan. He didn't go from a country church to New York. He grew up in New York. Okay. Right. If you receive my meaning. I receive your meaning. And dad always would say to me, and probably to David and my other brother, he'd say, I am not a specialist. I am a generalist. And I feel like scholarship today, particularly in the seminary, tries to produce specialists, tries to produce men that are committed to Hebrew, men that are committed to Greek, men are com- committed to diagramming the Greek Men that are committed to redemptive historical, men who are committed to expositional, men who believe that you should preach for the conviction of hearts. And so one of the things I realized is that I actually believe that there are many ways to preach Hmm. and that we ought not to be schismatic about our commitments. Now, I have commitments. You've been under my preaching. And you know I have idiosyncrasies. We all have them. Yeah. And you can identify a preacher. I remember listening to Charles Stanley, and Charles Stanley would always say, Now, listen here. Martin Lloyd-Jones is always saying, this is the most important truth in all of Scripture. Every single know. sermon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with
0: John Piper. He has his quiet mode, and then he has his loud mode. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: And he's absolutely gaga over adverbs. Mm-hmm. Any word that oh, ends man. with an L-Y. He stacks slith- them. He stacks them. flowery to the core. Yeah. Now.
2: Or hyphenated adjectives. Yeah,
1: I mean he's he's ba, ba, he's, ba, like, ba, 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 he's like he's like he's like Baroque to the Googleplex. Yes. Uh, Baroque you know? to the Googleplex. He, he's like the cathedral of Bonn <laughs> where there isn't a square inch of stone that is not a curly cue. <laughs> now that's my initial reaction is homiletics is the practice of public teaching. That's where it came from, from the Greek. And it didn't used to be preaching. It just used to be being a speaker in a social context. Hmm. All right. And we need to demystify it. Yeah. We need to demystify it. If I were to be asked, what am I opposed to in preaching that I think is evil? (laughs) which you haven't asked, but shall I ask myself? (laughs) What are you opposed to? (laughs) (laughs) I am absolutely opposed to Hmm. Yeah, And I would say that among conservative reform Presbyterian types, that is the worst part of our preaching.
0: Uh, And what do you mean by that?
1: It's a man that preaches in a way to accrue respect and admiration.
2: Well, and I would say that one of the ways that people do that now is by signaling that they only preach expositionally.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And
2: so this is one of the things that I've had to learn just in my preaching here. We started with the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Guess what the Sermon on the Mount is? It's a sermon mm-hmm. by Jesus, mm-hmm. setting an example for what preaching is. And guess mm-hmm. what it's not? It's not an expositional sermon. No, not
1: at all. I and mean, if we're to follow you have expositional parts, name sure
2: Sure, you've heard it said. Yeah, you've heard it said, yeah. But that's just like, he's drawing on this, he's drawing on that, he's pulling in this, he's pulling on that, he's got things he wants to say. And if you, if we're to take the example of Peter at Pentecost, any sermon we find in the New Testament, any sermonizing we see in the Old Testament, like the, the book of Proverbs opens with all these exhortations that are little tiny sermons, mm-hmm. or any of the epistles, none of them set an example of expository preaching as we know and understand it today, which is not to say that expository preaching is bad or not a great standard to set for yourself in the pulpit. But I found that I need freedom to step aside and to do certain sermon series that are topical just to help teach and instruct and hit things in scripture systematically that our people need to hear. Mm -hmm. But I've got to also then make a case that that's a biblically okay permissive good thing to do i have to make people understand that i'm not being unfaithful to scripture by stepping aside and not preaching expositionally this particular sunday it is also true that in the context that i live and minister you really have the extremes so you have the verse by verse only or you have fluffy dogs Mm -hmm. right top of everything is just a helpful thought for the week and so i want people to understand our commitment is first to scripture and we do work through scripture and we're in Romans right now. But today we're taking a break from that because I think this is important.
0: Right. You're almost saying that as much for the people that come from mega churches who are going to be like, oh, no, topical. That was abused where I came from. Are we getting away from mm-hmm. the, the pure milk of scripture.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to a church in Bloomington back in 1992, and it was a church that had one of the elders was a guy that was studying down at Southern Seminary, and when I got to the church, I sensed at Sunday mornings that there was flippancy and an absence of any reverence and fear of God in the congregation. Everybody was just convinced that they were Christian. And so they'd joke immediately prior to the service, standing around talking, and it was in a room with a low ceiling. And so it was a cacophony. It was very loud. It was very disrespectful. And I had a music director who I was appalled that when the service began, there there was no call to worship biblically, and the people didn't even stand. And so in a meeting one time, I said, I want us to stand as we begin to worship. And he said, Well, it doesn't make any difference to God. God doesn't feel more honored because we stand. Standing is just a bodily posture. I was flabbergasted that everyone there was so presumptuous about their relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, so if you had an audience with the queen, would you sit? And of course, the answer is if he tried, he would meet his superior physical force. If you've Mm -hmm. watched the scene of the Queen and Winston Churchill and any of the the modern documentaries or whatever you call historical romances. Anyhow, I tell all of that because it just hit me that people were, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And it hit me, they did not know who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. There is no way you know who Jesus is and have no fear of God and are presumptuous about the condition of your soul and your children who have left your home and are not in any way Christian. And so what I did is I started a series in Matthew. I said, let's teach them who Jesus is. Hmm. And so that whole series ended up being expositional. But I remember one time this guy from Southern Seminary was getting his master's in social work. He took me to task after one of my sermons because he said that wasn't expositional. And so, what I would have done is I would have taken the text I was on and opened it up thematically. I mm-hmm. would have taken just a few words or one verse as opposed to five verses or three.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was a very serious issue because his father in law was on the elders' board, he was on the elders' board, his family and his wife, they basically controlled the nominating committee of the church. And it, the elders, a number of them, despised me precisely because I was preaching to the conscience and I was calling people to fear God I was trying to reform the church they'd lost a couple hundred members in the years two years before I came and it was in bad condition the sanctuary had just it was Advent they forgot to blow out the Advent wreath that's the condition the church was in so 600 people they forgot to blow out the Advent wreath and it burned the sanctuary everything <laughs> had to be replaced
0: just because there was so much confusion and
2: nobody was taking responsibility. The church
1: outside was ugly. The sign was warped and peeling. There were no shrubs. All the crab apple trees had water sprouts going out of the top like they, they needed a crew cut. Everything about it, the heat didn't work. And I found that the reason was that they had never changed the filter for the heat exchange unit. And then when I changed it, I figured out what was wrong. I got yelled at. That's not the job of the senior pastor. Mm-hmm. So it was a battle. right? And so him coming to me and saying, you're not preaching biblically, you are not preaching expositionally, okay? And that got me thinking about the fact. And I went back to him and I said, listen, do you think Jonathan Edwards was an unfaithful preacher? Have you ever read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards?
2: Or any of the Puritans?
1: Yeah, Jonathan Edwards takes the word the, the definite article, (laughs) and he gives you 58,000 words on the word the, and its significance there. And so I think we have to be very careful in not being schismatic. Mm -hmm. I was going to say rigid, but on the other hand, I condemn pulpiteering, Mm -hmm. absolutely condemn it, and I would love to be schismatic and remove Everybody from the church and from shepherding, who is a pulpiteer, absolutely want them gone. Mm-hmm. Yep. And why?
2: The whole point of their pulpiteering is to draw attention to themselves and magnify their own name and make disciples of themselves. And it's not to shepherd the sheep. It's not to care for the sheep. It's not to draw them to God through repentance and faith. It's look at me and how awesome
1: I am and how you died I am. Do you guys remember the quote I've used a number of times of Kierkegaard? Do you remember that one? So, an attack upon Christendom. When it comes to preaching, he says there is an absolute law, and it's the law of the echo. You have to listen carefully to the echo of the preacher. When a man preaches, if the echo is, what an tight man. How well-read he is. How sophisticated his vocabulary is. He is a prince among men. He said, the echo tells you that this man is completely and entirely unfaithful as a preacher Mm -hmm. and should be removed immediately. He says, if the echo returns to you and the echo is... There is something deeply disturbing about this man. He seems to not have any proper sense of propriety and manners, and he's just maybe a little bit sick. He said, Know then that you have a man that is straining towards proper preaching, but in the end fails. Then he says, If the echo comes back away with that man, he must die. Know then that you have faithful preaching hmm. and i have always felt that that is essentially true people didn't think jesus was a wonderful preacher what they said about him was they compared him to all their preachers and they said he speaks with authority mm-hmm. and what man who's a pulpiteer today hopes that his people see him being distinguished from other pastors because he speaks with authority. I mean, it's almost a definition of pulpiteering today that they're very sophisticated in denying they have any authority. Think of John MacArthur saying over and over to that woman that asked him in the QA, you remember that video? He says, I have no authority. I have no authority. I have no authority. I have no authority. All the authority is scripture. And you just wonder whether the thought came to his mind that what the people loved about Jesus is that he spoke with authority. Mm. so interesting.
0: I'm concerned as you talk that there's a certain kind of young man that's going to listen and think, well, okay, so I need to be sure to strip out anything of my personality, strip out anything of rhetorical excellence.
2: Just speak the truth. If I just have a manuscript and I bury my head down and I speak in a monotone and just let the truth of Uh
1: scripture speak for itself. If we had a man like that, and we're critiquing him, which we used to do, after Mm -hmm. he preached his first sermon, we'd go in a private room and we'd have Adam, and he knew we loved him, so it wasn't destructive. But you would say to a man like that that he's proud, Mm. and he would be offended. He would say, I'm not proud. I'm trying to strip out my personality in any attempt on my part to win admirers. Mm -hmm. And you say, no, it's avoiding vulnerability that's what you're doing you're trying to be above any accusation that you are straining to make an impression but how do you feed sheep if you don't let them smell the food if you don't give it good taste if you don't if you you don't
2: act like you believe what you're saying if you don't act like you believe it matters if you don't act like you believe it matters to them yeah. If you don't have a conviction that your job <laughs> is actually to persuade people of the truth and get them to believe and hold on to it and to repent of their sin and to change. Absolutely. Right. All of that has to be there. And
1: that's part of faithful and it's pride. preaching. And so there it's is pride a pride to not have that there.
2: That's right. And so there's a sense in which, like, if you think that you can pull all of that out, including your own conviction, including your own drive to care for and love God and his people that you can be faithful by being boring.
0: Well, it's fascinating listening as you preached through the Sermon on the Mount when we first moved to Evansville, realizing, just going through it again, wow, this wouldn't hold up in a lot of stodgy kind of reformed pharisaical churches because this is like punchlines. It's aphorisms. Mm. It's it's pretty... Well thought out, pretty sparkling. It's meant to be memorable. It's meant to get past Mm -hmm. your defenses. It's
2: meant to be sticky. Like you take things like that's why we remember so much of the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to have preached it. You don't have to have memorized it. To you don't even have to have been in church much to know our Father who art in heaven. To know where your treasure is, there your heart will be. To know blessed are the meek. To know ask and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. Knock or asking you'll be. Or the golden rule for goodness sake do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. These really sticky, memorable, one-line things that just like, boom, they live in your brain, they live in your heart, they get past your defenses, you can't run from them. Mm-hmm. Like they they find their way back, you're in a corner, and you don't know what to do in this situation, and you have do unto others as you have them do unto you pop into your brain. And it's just like, man, what a gift of God that we have such a one rule that can help me figure out some way forward that honors God in this situation.
1: Mm -hmm. There was a man in that church where I was preaching through Matthew, and I did 75 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And when I started, my first sermon was simply reading the Sermon on the Mount from the beginning to the end with no comment. And this man was an emeritus professor of astronomy, did his doctorate at Harvard, was married to one of my dearest friends in my life, Rita Cuffey. And he was a mocker of all things godly in Scripture. And he was a dear friend. I've mentioned him in other times we've talked together and recorded. And I bring him up here because he would come to church every Sunday with his wife, but he was completely scornful of God, of his word. He was above it all. And I never had him as angry and opposed to a sermon as I did the Sunday that I simply read the Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end. That was the Sunday that he was most scornful hmm. of my sermon. And nothing impressed upon me more the wickedness of that man hmm. than the fact that when it was simply Jesus, it awakened in him his worst yeah. scorn. He did end up at the end of his life repenting. Hmm. Hmm. And was welcomed into membership and communed and died a holy death. And so I don't want to discourage people. I want to be very uplifting or you won't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <you know? That's laughs> but why it came in. because I confronted him with his worst sin of his life. It took me years to get to the point that I had the faith to do that. But I'm absolutely convinced and his wife was also. And that's the thing that kills me about preaching is it's like preachers today. And I know a lot of them. I've listened to a lot of sermons. And it's like preachers today think it's a principle to avoid condemning and admonishing and rebuking in the pulpit. It just boggles my mind that we've actually come to the place where we are proud of the very thing that is most indicative of our betrayal of our calling as shepherds.
0: So when you came or when you come to a passage of scripture and you're going to preach on it, what do you think? What do you aim at? What is your starting place?
1: It used to be that I'd read all of the top exegetes, like buying I. Howard Marshall's commentary on Luke for $45, I think, when I was in seminary. And I would craft a manuscript. So Every time I got in the pulpit, with the exception of maybe one or two times in my life, I had a full manuscript, anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 words, okay? And for many, many years, I simply read the manuscript. And so I would look for telling illustrations, sometimes poetry. I tried not to be sentimental or maudlin in my preaching because it gets the women and children, but it doesn't get the men. Mm -hmm. Although. A lot of good women hate it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, for instance, both your wives would spit on me. (laughs) Yep, that's right. (laughs) And so would mine. I was telling a pastor this weekend that maybe the most important thing is that your wife doesn't think you're anything special Mm -hmm. for a preacher. Anyhow, all that changed because I realized that reading a manuscript was a refusal to depend on the Holy Spirit. It also changed because of Jody and the band getting up and putting themselves out there, vulnerable and demanding zeal and worship through the music. And so I didn't feel like I had to awaken people after the preliminaries. Mm -hmm. I felt like the preliminaries were the substance, and I better submit myself to the same sort of zeal and risk Mm -hmm. that Jody was by picking up a guitar instead of his precious violin. He'd been at the Royal Conservatory and Phil Moyer was out here to become the next what's the guy's name? Hillier. Oh yeah. yeah. The Hillier Ensemble. And then he picked up the drums. And so these guys were killing pulpiteering. Mm-hmm. If you will, musically. Right. And so it gave me great freedom and I began to depart from my manuscript. And I hated it. And I still hate it to this day. I loathe The fact that I have departed from my manuscript every Monday, I am puking about myself. (laughs) And the reason is that when you depart from the manuscript, you haven't made a considered judgment in private and quiet about what should and shouldn't be said. And so what you say is always sinful in Mm -hmm. the pulpit. Now, that probably is scandalous to our listeners, for me to say that you always sin in the pulpit. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think at this point, we should stop and talk about that a little. Yeah. But I became convinced that if I was not willing to be vulnerable and to display my sins and my personality in the pulpit, I didn't love my sheep because my sheep wanted to be led by a man that was not a hero, but was like them. And they could see in me a call to be faithful to God despite our sins. But if I was pristine, I call them hairspray pastors, mm-hmm. that what I really was teaching them was that they paid me to be pious to prove it doesn't pay to be pious. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the whole exchange in ministry that is all through the conservative church, especially Reformed Presbyterian. As you put them up in the pulpit and you talk about how much he reminds you of John Stott mm-hmm. and Martin Lloyd-Jones and mm-hmm. J.I. Packer. Right. Alistair Beggarly, I mean, you know, Beg Alistair. What, what's his last name? Alistair Trebek. Alex Trebek. Trebek. Alex Trebek. Trebek. Yes. yes, yes, yes. With the eye candy woman next to him. That's uh, a Jack.
2: That's a Jack. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Vanna White. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, okay. Alex Trebek's Jeopardy. Alex so,
1: Trebek. how do you talk about this issue of sin in the pulpit? <laughs> Isn't it true?
2: Well, there's no way to avoid it, even if you are in your manuscript, and everything's calculated and
1: considered. And that itself is a sin.
2: That that itself can be a sin, and it's going to still have your sins in your calculations and in your judgments. Yeah. yeah. You're going to be wrong about things. You're going to be wrong about what your people need. You're going to cut a corner here, or you're going to go too far there, and that's just part of it. Like Part of leading people is having faith to, to lead with the chin and to take it on yourself. You have to be able to let people see who you are. And what your sins are, and and I think that's a part of a faithful shepherd, like you were saying, it gives people faith that they don't have to be, they don't have to be perfect. But if you try to present perfection, man, that's the sin of all sins in the pulpit. So you have to you have to have faith to be a sinner, no matter what. You as a person in the congregation, if you are under the illusion that your pastor isn't,
1: if you admire your pastor, your pastor is not admirable. Every pastor should kill the instinct for celebrityism that is endemic across the Western world through media. And if you don't kill that, I pity you when you stand before God and give an answer for your care of your sheep. Your sheep do not need a hero, let alone a superhero. And that's what the Gospel Coalition is it's a collection of men that have aspired to be the superheroes of the church and get rich off it and receive adulation. And it's a curse upon the church today, an absolute curse. Forget the content. The very fact that it exists, that it's a referential group of men that sit in easy chairs in front of people and perform like monkeys. And pastors should never perform. I just can't get over how we can do things like that, having read the New Testament. I just, nothing is more counter to the Apostle Paul than gospel coalition. Mm-hmm. And All these groups that just receive praise, and I've thought more and more as I get older that the currency of ministry is vulnerability. And if you're not vulnerable as a shepherd to your sheep, if you are not being rejected by your sheep, and if you don't feel pain, you bear no resemblance to Jesus or to the apostle Paul, because their lives were defined by rejection. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised of men, and we, we didn't. And that's Paul. Mm-hmm. Why do we love Paul? We love Paul because of this list. I was shipwrecked. I was stoned. I was left for dead. I've been hungry in the city, hungry in the country. I've been beaten. I've been lashed. I've been. And that's not even to say all oh, that I suffer for the sake of God's people. It just has no resemblance to what men who go to seminary aspire to have in ministry. How can you be a hipster church planner and know anything about Jesus and the Apostle mm. Paul?
0: Can I complicate things a little yeah, bit? Sure, sure, sure.
1: So, and uh, by the way, let me answer your question. Yeah. Now the way I go to a text is I go to the text and I look at it and I say, what do I not like and believe in this text? That's mm-hmm. how I do it. And then I preach to myself that that is the place that it's most important that I repent and that I change my thinking and my conduct. Go ahead now. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I just wanted to complicate things a little bit because a certain kind of vulnerability is the currency of the beautifully broken hipster. There's a type of preacher who trades in (coughs) vulnerability (coughs) of a type, and it actually isn't helpful.
1: It comes from Nowen, Henry Nowen. What started it was the wounded healer. It was a book that was extremely popular back in, I'm going to say, the late 80s, early 90s, and that is is very bad. And the way you recognize what you're talking about, Nate, is that there is part and parcel of this wounded healer, I'm a sinner just like you are, da 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 is that they use that in such a way that they never feel the weight of their responsibility and authority for the sheep. And so they never combine that with commands to the sheep to fear God, to obey the Ten Commandments, to do this and that. It's used as a method of lowering the standard, always. Mm -hmm. Because we're sinners. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Isn't it wonderful that God gives us grace? When grace and our sin is used as a way of lowering God's standard and making people feel even more the unbearable lightness of the church today. That's wrong. I don't know what else to say except that maybe it's a good thing, and that's why it's mimicked. Mm -hmm. But it's mimicked in such a way that people end up sort of being acolytes to their wounded healer. Well,
2: it's like anything else. Vulnerability (laughs) without a cost is not vulnerability, right? It's just performative vulnerability. And so part of the vulnerability— That's good.
1: Performative vulnerability.
2: Part of the real vulnerability we need to have in the pulpit is not the kind of vulnerability that's a posturing that says, look at me, I'm so broken and relatable, but the kind of vulnerability that really exposes ourselves to be despised by our people for our actual sin, and actually for calling them to real repentance, for actually believing that God has something to say to them and to us, that real repentance is a demand of God. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I think I would say that the way to recognize the counterfeit of what we're talking about here is it always hides responsibility and authority that it has. Mm -hmm. It will never speak or declare authority when it does that. The men that do that and talk about being wounded healers are never men who proclaim the authority of God, the authority of the law, and their authority as God's under shepherd. And so if you have a man that does that and you think, well, this is good. You shouldn't create a cult. This guy's humble and he admits he's a sinner. What we really need to know then is whether he admits he's a sinner as he commands you to repent for this specific violation of God's law, Mm -hmm. then you have the sweet spot. But humility and brokenness are so, so utterly contrary to the calling of a shepherd, Mm -hmm. when they're combined in sort of this pathetic weakness of modern men, God's servants are vulnerable and strong.
0: Well, as you talk, I'm thinking about my marriage and how irritated my wife gets when I say, honey, have you thought about like there's these dishes and they exist and have you thought about doing them. And I'm not actually that bad. But if I start something like that, she picks up on it immediately. She knows exactly what I want. And oftentimes she'll say to me like, will you just tell me what you want? And what I've come to realize is it actually takes more vulnerability. It takes more humility for me to just say in a straightforward manner, I'd like you to do the dishes like that. That kills me inside because who am I to tell her to do the dishes? But If I can come in and say, ah, honey, you know, you know how sometimes dishes are a a thing that we, if I could find some way to couch it in some kind of faux, like I would, I wouldn't want to be the kind of ogre that commands his wife to do the dishes. Maybe I'll feel a little bit better about myself, a little bit of performative vulnerability, but she actually despises that kind of thing. It just muddies the waters. It makes it unclear what we're talking about.
2: You're refusing to expose yourself to rejection too, Right. right? So that's part of leadership. Leadership is having the humility to lead and expose yourself to rejection. And so it's wearing the authority and the responsibility that you have in the situation to give the command, give the orders, set the table, call your wife to do the dishes or call your people to repent and to follow Jesus of specific sins that they actually need to repent of.
1: Often in preaching, I would stop and say to a father, don't lie to your children about the authority of God. Hmm. And that's true of every authority. I've been reading, I'm probably up to 9,000 pages of Solzhenitsyn in the last couple of years. I'm getting to the end of him, and I'm in the Red Wheel series in the third. Those are his novels? No, they're History of the Russian Revolution. And the thing about the Tsar, Nicholas, is that he had absolute anarchy. And even the anarchists were anarchical against each other. In other words, there were so many brands of them. It was like Oliver Cromwell when in the time of the English Civil War. It was like every single brand of Reform Presbyterianism was killing the other brands of reform, mm-hmm. or Anglicanism or Free Church or whatever. And then there was Ireland. And Nicholas would never say no. Mm-hmm. Never. It didn't matter how awful things were. He had Stolopin, was a godly prime minister, a wonderful man, and they assassinated him. He had bombs going off. He had riots in the street. He had the workers refusing to work. He had betrayal. He had every form of sedition there was. And he would never say no, never. And his wife would plead with him And You have copies of the letters, and she would plead with him to be a man and to be firm. She was the only firm thing in the kingdom. And so, of course, what happens is it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And guess what? They end up with Stalin. Mm -hmm. Think about this. And so I think that that's what's going on in the church today. The pastors are so desirous of having a good reputation, the only way you can get a reputation today is to humble brag and to deny that you have any authority and to present yourself as a gentle healer and ask your wife whether maybe she thinks that in the next three days the dishes could be done because it's beginning to smell. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We present ourselves in our authority positions as very reticent and knowing it's obnoxious and knowing everybody hates to be told what to do and and making concessions in the way we present ourselves. This is what we all do today. Every man has learned to do that, okay? And the sad thing is when a man repents of that, he then becomes bombastic Mm -hmm. and thinks that he's become Mick Jagger singing, under my thumb. (laughs) And so, yeah, you're right. That little episode between you and your wife is so symptomatic of the way we are as pastors today. And it just doesn't help people. It Mm -hmm. doesn't help people. The only person it helps is ourselves. It keeps us in the pulpit getting paid. And it causes our churches to grow. But we are lying to God's people about God's authority in the coming judgment and the nature of the Christian life and holiness and what a disciple is. And the thing is, you were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, it is epigrammatic, it's poignant, it's telling, it's simple, elegantly simple, but every bit of it is convicting. Yeah. None of it in any way encourages the complacency of Dane Ortland's pathetic, awful, gentle, and lowly. When you read the Sermon on the Mount and- I suppose that you could describe Jesus as gentle and lowly in it, but in such a way that every person listening is convicted of their sin.
2: Mm-hmm.